Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. The last page of the Chronicles of Narnia reads like this. There was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you, as used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. For us, this is the end of all the stories, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is what we celebrate on All Saints. That the best is yet to come. This is what we celebrate on the Feast of All Saints. And I'd argue we celebrate every Sunday as we gather in the hope of the resurrection that the best is yet to come. That what comes after death is better. Paul says these words in Philippians chapter 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says, I would prefer to depart for it is much better. This is what we believe. That the best is yet to come. That's why my curate a number of years ago used to refer to those who died as being promoted to glory. Because that's what we believe as Christians. The question is on this All Saints Sunday, as we commemorate those who've gone before us, as we remember well in the hope of the resurrection, especially in this year past with names commemorated in our bulletin, on this All Saints Sunday, if the best is yet to come, then how do we wait well? How do we 
live well as we wait. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, which Monica read just a moment ago, we see incredible hope for the waiting. See, here's what Revelation 7 tells us. That although we are waiting for the promise, oh, how we're waiting for that promise of heaven. We participate in heaven now, already. We are beginning to participate in that promise now. We're waiting for the promise, but we also participate in that promise now. All because we have been fully prepared for that day. We have been fully prepared, completely prepared by Jesus for that day. The work is finished. See, first we need to grapple with the fact that we're waiting for this promise. Verse 9 of chapter 7 of Revelation says, After this I looked, and behold, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and every tribe and peoples and language standing before the throne. And we got to stop there and got to ask, what does it mean that there's this multitude before the throne? And what it means is this. If you read at the bottom of the text we read, verses 15 through 17, it means that to stand before the throne of God is to be sheltered and satisfied and shepherded to be where we've always longed to be, to be as we've always longed to be before God, in God's presence, with him as our shepherd. We long for it. Every single one of us longs for this. The problem is we long for it. We have to wait. It's not here yet. We struggle with the pain of waiting. I hate waiting. Amazon has made me a terrible waiter. I expect it by 5 p.m. delivery or I start losing my mind. We do not know how to wait any longer, especially how to wait for that promise. And the truth is that there's suffering in the waiting. Because the promise is a picture of wholeness and perfection, and all has been put right. No more tears. He shall wipe their tears from their eyes. And yet we have tears still. We have pain still. We have disease still. We have war and violence and heartache still, and we wait in the midst of suffering. You know, it's interesting in verse 14, John is asked by the angel, who are these multitudes before the throne. And John says, well, you know. And the angel says, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. And see, that word tribulation in the Greek is the word thalipsis. And it means crushing pressure. Absolute, debilitating, crushing pressure. It was actually an image that was used of one of the various tortures that were used within the Roman Empire. They were masters of torture, especially against those who defied Rome like the Christians. Uh, Philipsis described the act of rolling a gigantic boulder slowly onto an individual. Imagine that. And he says, these are the ones that are coming out of the great tribulation, the great crushing pressure, the great suffering. 
Now, in one sense, it's speaking specifically to the life of the early church. People like John, who's on the island of Patmos, the bishop of Asia Minor, suffering for the gospel, being absolutely persecuted and destroyed, as Robert read just a moment ago, from Jesus beginning the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? There's this picture in the early church of Christians being absolutely persecuted, and they're the ones that are coming out of this great tribulation, but it doesn't end after the first century, That language, those who are coming out of the great tribulation, is an active present word. It means that they're still coming out of the great tribulation in this moment. We may not be having boulders rolled upon us, not all of us, at least in this part of the world. We may not be being put to death for our faith, but we are all suffering as we wait, suffering in the midst of pain, suffering in a broken world, suffering with a longing that's put within us that says it's not supposed to be like this. We are suffering through our own great tribulations in our lives. You know, it's the reason I got to say the suffering we experience now, it's the reason I always have to say in the context of talk about heaven that Anglicans do not believe in purgatory. Just careful with that. There's a lot of purgatory-like language out there. There's a lot of purgatory-like popular fiction out there. Even C.S. Lewis, one of my favorites, kind of wrote about purgatory. He and I are going to have some words one day in the new heavens and the new earth. Purgatory is a medieval doctrine that believes that between earth and heaven, there's this middle way station. And that's the gray space, the middle place, where whatever additional work needs to happen to you to get you ready for heaven, that that goes on there. And so it's a period of kind of suffering and working through all your pain and sin and all the rest. And then eventually you'll come out of purgatory, you know, a few million years later, kind of ready for heaven. But what the Bible tells us is that in death, sin is finally put to end in us. Thanks be to God. The sin which is wrapped around our neck, even though we are redeemed, dies with us in death. It is put to death finally. We do not need a series, a time of purgatory. Although, as Tom Wright, the retired Bishop of Durham says, the reason we like purgatory so much is it seems familiar. He said, you know, this idea that you're in a place where you're working through the sin in your life, pursuing holiness, seeking to put away the old man or the old woman within you and living more into the life of Christ, really struggling with the pain and the suffering of this life. He says, the reason why Dante's purgatory is the most popular of his trilogy is because we know that place. We live in it right now. We experience that life of purgation now. That which is broken and wrong in us being put away. But it's this life right now. Suffering through the reality of this life now. With the hope that when we die, it is far better. The promise. You know, I've told the story often of Father Freer Kennedy, who was a monk in my parish in Ottawa. I mean, it's so weird having a monk in your parish. You're like, what do I do with a monk 
in my parish. He was a priest, and, and Freer was amazing, although I only knew him in his late 90s. He was an incredible uh, prayer warrior, and we never knew when Freer was going to come to church. And when he did, of course, he was a priest, and so he'd put on the vestments, and we knew that day that the service was going to be a lot longer because Freer would, would, would get in the procession, and, and Freer went about this pace in the procession. And Monica knows exactly what I'm talking about. She saw this so many times, and we'd all just be walking behind Freer, and, and, but we didn't know what quite to do with Freer except we, we loved him. But Freer suffered with so many ailments, so much at the end. And the way Freer coped with it was he kept rewriting his funeral arrangements. He did it all the time. We get these messages at the office. Father Freer called and he's changed this hymn in his funeral or he's changed this reading in his funeral. He was constantly tweaking and changing his funeral service. In fact, I knew when I was in trouble with Father Freer because on occasion, my receptionist would tell us, oh, Father Freer has removed you as preacher. And I go, oh, I'm in trouble with Father Freer. I got to go talk to Father Freer and, 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 and reconcile. Sort of liturgical, passive aggressive behavior. But the point was, <laughs> Freer dealt with his suffering by planning his funeral. By looking to that moment, that promise, his eyes fixed on the fact that this suffering would come to its end and there would be promise on the other side. For as Romans 8, 18 says, for I consider that these present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. We wait for the promise but even as we wait, we participate in the promise of heaven. We participate already now. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, it says that this crowd has palm branches in their hands. You want to say, I, I know about palm branches. If you've been in the Anglican tradition at all, you come during Holy Week, and on Palm Sunday, we wave those palm branches, and you think, I, I, that, that seems familiar to you. It should seem familiar to it. It's meant to be worship. The palm branches are declaring, like we do on Palm Sunday, Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is King. It's a moment of praise. And I'll tell you, if you're not convinced that heaven is full of worship, you haven't been reading the Bible. I mean, here's the problem. For those who struggle with worship, you know, especially length of worship, like, you know, it's just a little bit long today. You know, the sermon was a, few minutes longer. You know, everyone seems to know the length of my sermon except for me in this room. But like, you know, the sermon was a bit longer. You know, the service, you know, I'm good for 75 minutes, but you get up to 80 minutes, you know, an hour and 20, you know, I'm starting to lose my mind. Heaven, eternal worship. So when I go a bit long when I'm preaching, I'm just getting you ready for heaven, okay? Like, the point is, when I take people to Rwanda, and they come into a Rwandan worship service. And we're getting past the first hour. And we're getting up to the second hour. And yes, we're getting up to the third hour and beyond. And people are looking at me like, is this going to keep going? I say, absolutely, get ready for heaven. This worship, this participation that we have with what's going on in heaven is at the core of what we called the communion of saints, the doctrine of the communion of saints, that there is a church in heaven and there is a church on earth, that we are unified 
together, that we participate together. In fact, Hebrews has a pretty profound way of saying this. You know, you walk into church on Sunday mornings, you know, and you're busy kind of getting ready for the day. And if you've got small children, you're trying not to, you know, kill your children on the way to church. And, you know, you're trying to be good Christian parents and you're just trying to get everything organized. You walk in and you go, oh, here's, you know, the building and some people. And and this is our kind of our image, right? The Bible wants us to have an even bigger vision of what happens when you walk into worship. Here's what Hebrews 12 says is, when you walk into worship, you have come to Mount Zion. I thought we were still in Plano, but apparently we're in Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, Hebrews 12 says, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is what we're invited to and participate in every time we gather for worship. The church on earth, worshiping and brought into the presence of the church in heaven. We say it in our Eucharistic prayer every week, right? When we come to the Sanctus. And again, for those who've had a loved one die recently, promoted to glory recently, the Sanctus in the Eucharist every week if understood rightly, can be such, such a comfort, right? Because we say, joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, and then we praise. And we're praising alongside with the church, triumphant in heaven. It's the reason that we have cemeteries outside church grounds, on church grounds, that we have columbariums like ours in the back. And if you haven't visited the columbarium, you should. You should visit a cemetery or a columbarium at least once a year. Or crypts. You can't really build basements in Plano, but you know, if we could, we'd have a crypt down below. We do this not just to bury our dead close by us as a sign of comfort, but as a moment of conviction. Yes, it comforts us to know that our loved ones are near to us as we come to worship, but it's meant also to convict us, to remind us every time we're brought into that heavenly worship that this life is not all that we have. We spend so much time trying to protect our lives and to save our lives and secure our lives. And we hear Jesus say in Matthew 16, whoever would save their life would lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. This is what our participation in heavenly worship should do to us, convict us. This life is not your own. Again, C.S. Lewis, I've got this quote on my wall in my office. It says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most in this present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men and women who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. 
Makes me think of William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, that in his lifetime saw an idea about evangelizing the very poorest of the poor to becoming a worldwide movement in his lifetime. And at the end of his life asked General Booth, how is it that this could have grown so far, so fast with such faithfulness? And you know what Booth said? He said, for the last 80 years, God has had all that there is of William Booth. For the last 80 years, God has had all that there is of William Booth. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You've been bought for a price. If the best is yet to come, how do we wait well? We are waiting for the promise of heaven and we participate in that promise now, in part. But here's the heart of the gospel. All because it's all been prepared for us. You have been fully prepared for heaven. You have been fully prepared for that day. Again, we can go through our lives thinking we need to justify ourselves and make ourselves right and go through all these exercises without receiving the true and unfading gospel that God has prepared you completely for that day. You are prepared now if you are in Christ. And we know that because this multitude before the throne, we're told, is clothed in white robes. And you say, oh, it's a bunch of Anglican clergy. They're all in white robes. No, but that's my point. Why do we wear white robes? The white robe here represents sinlessness. It represents purity, right? It's the language from verse 14 of chapter seven that says they've, it's an inverted image. They say they've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. I mean, what an image, right? You've washed them white in the blood of the lamb, but that's precisely what's happened. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as he's referred to by his cousin John the Baptist in John chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he bears as sacrifice everything wrong in you and me. Every stain, everything wrong in you and me, he bears in himself. And when he comes to the cross bearing that sin, taking the penalty of that sin on himself, what does he cry out then at the end of John's gospel? His last word on the cross. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. And it is sin put to death, your sin put to death in Jesus, his blood upward has put sin to death in you. You are washed. If you have been baptized, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you're washed. As you're baptized, that is the sign of your washing. You're clean. That's why we wear these in front of you. Not because we say, oh, look at us, how pure we are. Absolutely not. We wear these robes as meant to be a mirror to you. This is what you look like before the throne of heaven. Washed, pure, cleansed by the blood of the lamb. I mean, if we had space, we could set up all kinds of clothing racks on Sunday morning out of the narthex and y'all could come in and put on your little white robes as a sign. That would be fun one Sunday, wouldn't it? Not at all. No, but the point is, it's a picture of our baptism. It's a picture of our salvation. 
right? This is how we've been prepared for heaven. The lamb who was slain has begun to reign. This is how we are prepared for heaven. You know, next Sunday we've got a baptism. I think there's about 20 people being baptized. And it's always a joy because, you know, they come big and small. I mean, adults and children and babies. And, and you know, sometimes you'll see those baptismal gowns that babies will wear. They're, they're, and I find the baptismal gowns pretty, pretty good. There's enough fabric there I can kind of wrap my hands around the gown and I got a good firm grip on the baby. For the little boys, some people want to put them in, and some of you know I'm talking about you, like to put their little baby boys in a little white tuxedo. Here's the thing. Those little white tuxedos are slippery. Oh my goodness. It's like you're trying to hold this kid. They're just like, I'm worried. I'm going to slip them and drop them right in the bowl, right? It's, it's just... It's amazing. You can't grab onto them. But the point is, whether it's a little white tuxedo that I can barely hang on to or a little white baptismal dress, the point is, that's what baptism is telling you. You've been washed. You're prepared. You're ready. Nothing more to be done. Nothing more you can do to earn that place. And what does that do to us? How does that change us knowing that we're ready. I often have shared the story of my very first pastoral care meeting with someone who was dying. Ada McKenzie, who was uh, in her 90s in our parish. I had just said I was interested in going into seminary and so our pastor said, well, if you're going to go potentially be a seminarian and a priest one day, you better come to someone's deathbed and experience that. And I'm like, okay. So we went First time I'd ever been in that situation. And I remember we walked in and Ada was very near the end. I'd never seen that before. Very, very near the end, but still talking. And Ada, who'd walked to the Lord for so many years and was so sweet, the pastor gave her words of assurance and prayed with her. And then he said, I'll never forget, he said, Ada, are you fearful? And she looked at him with a big smile on her face because Ada was as deaf as a doornail. And she said, of course, I'm very cheerful. (laughs) On her deathbed. Because this is the conviction of a Christian who knows they're prepared. You've been made ready. Ready to stand before the throne. The best is yet to come. Do we believe that? That's what we proclaim on all saints. The best is yet to come and we wait for it. We wait for the promise and we agonize in the waiting, but we're participating even now in the promise as we enter into worship, joining with the church in heaven and on earth, being reminded of the fact that this life is not all we've been given and that we've been prepared. You're ready. Will you believe it? Oh, blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee and all are thine. Alleluia, alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.